Good morning, Sarah Hepla. Good morning, Nancy Rommelman. How's it going over there? Uh, good. I could say we're up and bright and chipper, but we're both sitting in, in dark spaces at the moment. It's very moody. Well, I'm in a closet with no light. And the reason that I'm in a closet is, first of all, I hate to disrupt the lavish image that listeners might have in their mind, but I broadcast from a closet every single time I do this. It's a large closet, if that makes it any better. But the light in here is so harsh. It's like a bulb without a globe around it, you know? So like, it just, I always feel like I'm in this like harsh interrogation room, which actually is exactly what you look like you're in right now. So I, as some people know, we have a little recording studio here in Chinatown and um, a couple different podcasts, podcast out of here, Ask a Jew, which is hilarious and people should go listen to it and match it. Hello, happy Hanukkah. Everybody, we've got our open thread open right now at, with a Hanukkah question for you up there. Um, but also the fifth column, guys. And Camille has been in town. He's not He's not always on site. He, he uh, beams him remotely. But I guess they've all been here because when I walked in, um, it was all set up in the way that you're, we, you're not usually looking at me like this. So it's kind of this spooky. Yeah, I'm looking spooky. at you with, with a different, yeah, different feelings setup. in my yep. In my heart. Di- oh, different feelings. Things um, have changed. Yeah. So, um, no, you mean the angle. Okay. The angle and the lighting, it's a, it's a little spooky. So, um, but it is morning. We are back on a morning schedule. And, um, Sarah, I, I don't know. I don't know if we've been on, um, in on a, on a whiplash or a riptide or whatever has been going on this week, but there are a couple things we wanted to talk about. Something we've been wanting to talk about for a while. Um, and now we're going to have the opportunity to do that. Uh, two nights ago, not last night, today we're recording on Wednesday the 21st, uh, Monday night, the um, jury finally came back with a verdict in the um, Harvey Weinstein trial in Los Angeles. Um, as uh, people who have paid attention to this know, he's already been tried in New York and found guilty and I believe sentenced to 23 years in prison. Um, he's been in prison for, I think, more than a year um, but he had to face charges in California from four different um, uh, claimants. I, d- I don't know if that's the right word. Accusers. We call them Jane Doe's. Four Jane, different Jane Doe's. Well, but one was not a Jane Doe. Well, two one, of them weren't. But I'm two, just saying for, yeah, two okay. of them use their real name. Um, and he was found guilty uh, on all charges in no, one. No, ma'am. No, no, no. On one oh. of one of the Janes, of Jane yes. Doe number one. All of those charges he was found guilty of. Uh, one, he was found not guilty of any mm-hmm. of them. And then two, it was sort of a, was it kind of partial? Hung jury. Hung jury. Um, he is now, uh, will be sentenced to, I believe it's at least 18 more years. Um, and it could be more. I read something yesterday. I, I understand when journalists do this because, of course, he could live to be as old as Methuselah, but he's 70 years old now. He already has 23 years from he's served a few of them um, in New York. And then another 18, they're like, he, you know, he may die in prison. It's like, yeah, probably. <laughs> well, a couple things about this case. Um, you know, Harvey Weinstein is, you know, arguably the most prominent uh, person in the Me Too scandals that that swept over our culture over the last three to four years or whatever that is. Five years now, I guess. Um, 
But his trials haven't gotten a lot of coverage. And I think that's really interesting. You know, the trial in New York really didn't get a lot of coverage. Um, but the one in LA has gotten even less. And, you know, I have theories on this. But one of my theories is that the trial of Harvey Weinstein took place in the public square and we were done. When those, when the New York Times piece followed by the New Yorker piece came out, that one two punch of she said followed by Ronan Farrow. It was done. And everybody had convicted him. He was a monster and put him away and lock him away. And his name is continually brought up, but only to say it wasn't as bad as Harvey Weinstein. He is the he is the case against which all other cases are compared. But I have to say, for any of our listeners that are like, ugh, I'm so done with Harvey Weinstein, because it's I mean, honestly, it's like really dark stuff. When you feel like you've heard all of it, I have to say the trials, having watched both of them fairly closely, were fascinating and filled with detail that never came out in larger stories in the press, filled with a kind of wrestling over what it means to have transactional sex, what is consent, what are the lines of demarcation around sexual trespass, and when does a generalized pig become a criminal sexual predator? Those are really interesting questions. And I listened to the trial, the first trial in New York, on a podcast that was done by these two Irish journalists. Um, one of them was named Phelim. <laughs> They're the most Irish names. It was like Phelim MacArthur <laughs> and Anne McElhenney. I, I, I've, like ba- I've like kind of gotten their names right. And they were like old school journalists who had not been told what you're not allowed to say in the Me Too era. And it's such a good listen. And one of the things that they did during that time, because the trial was not televised, was they got actors to reenact uh, transcripts of the courtroom. So it felt like you were sitting there in the courtroom. It's And it's hours and hours long, and I would listen to it on these long drives and I just was like, there was this one story about, you know, the, the, the New York trial in particular is a little bit different than this LA trial. And we can talk about that. But the New York trial, the women that were bringing the claim against him, they all, I'm pretty sure there are three of them and they, they had relationships with him afterwards. And, you know, he bought them purses and he flew them on his private plane and he got them into, to, you know, special screenings. And, you know, the question was really around, does that negate what came before, whether that was a rape or not? And, you know, that's, you could say, no, it doesn't negate that. Okay, I can listen to that. But at the same time, if the question is, is this transactional, and then you make a transaction, and you follow it up for years, I mean, this this was, I think, far more fascinating than journalists had the bandwidth for at the time. Um, There's a woman named Jessica Mann who, uh, and I'm using her name because she used her name. Sure, sure. And she was an aspiring actress, and she had an interaction with him that she described as rape. And, you know, but then he became a really good trusted counsel of her. And I think it was the, you know, it's the defense that asked her to read a letter that she'd written once to a boyfriend that had a problem with this relationship and she's explaining why he's so important in her life. 
And it was so, it, this was one of the most powerful things I heard that year. I just remember driving in the darkness and listening to this other actress read the written words of a different actress who was explaining to her boyfriend who didn't want her to be friends with Harvey Weinstein why he was so important in her life. And she breaks down on the stand crying. And I was like, yeah, because you're split inside by the warring vectors of somebody that could be so good to you and so bad at once. That's my take. And that's something that is extremely hard to shoehorn or just accept into the narrative. So let's just reverse uh, a, a hypothetical um, situation here. You are an aspiring actress, and Harvey Weinstein, he he really did seem to have a pattern. Um, come up to my hotel room, like you will talk, either we'll talk the for hotel an hour. Bathroom op- the hotel bathroom right. robe open, the massage. Well, sometimes not. Sometimes a couple of people, because we've watched a couple of documentaries now. We watched the, the um, uh, Catch and Kill, the podcast tapes, which was on HBO, which is based on Ronan Farrow's uh, investigations. And I also watched the uh, March 2020 Dateline that you recommended. And 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 many of the times, yes, they go up to the room and he's there with the open bathrobe. I mean, this is, and, and often people just like run. They're like, we're not doing this. But others, they go in and they talk for like an hour. They have like a nice conversation about work. It's very, you know, I, I think this was a uh, a method of his, like to get him, this woman who's like young, she can't believe she has this opportunity. And and now it's like, wow, I can't believe we're hitting on all these cylinders. And then he's like, excuse me, I'll be back in a minute. Then he comes back with the robe. Okay. So let's say we're reverse engineering this. You then have an unwanted sexual encounter with this person you don't even know. You know who he is. He's this gigantic, shining avatar of success in Hollywood. You have it. It's you don't want it. Um, and yet somehow, for whatever reasons, I don't know what continued transactions like, okay, well, let's meet tomorrow. We'll talk about a role. Or I still think maybe I'm going to be able to get something from him. And then somehow you're able to make this, I'm putting this a little bit in air quotes, make this relationship work like this right. Jessica man. Right. It, it works and it's satisfying something in you. Is it just this sort of evanced hope? Maybe stardom is around the corner. Right. Is it that I'm, I have proximity to this person? He offers me things. I'm not just talking about like a plane ride or a purse, but somehow whether real or imagined status. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, I think people have and will argue, well, Nancy and Sarah, the initial encounter was so traumatic to this person that everything got knocked around. And so whatever she agrees to enter into um, moving forward, she's been incapacitated in some way. And 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 she's she can't any longer use good judgment or see what's good for her. And I I mean there may be something to this. It may be the case that someone gets so knocked about that they can't really function to their own uh, good effects. But then you look at someone, someone we've talked about a lot, like an Aja Argento, who is, you know, not a heroic person as far as I'm concerned, who had an initial apparently bad encounter with Harvey Weinstein and continued not only a relationship with him for, I think, about a decade, but a sexual relationship. So where does this line get... it it does a woman who has been uh, accosted and assaulted, sexually assaulted by Harvey Weinstein, is she ever again allowed to have agency? And that, I think, is a very difficult question for people to wrestle with. 
I do think that Harvey Weinstein, he has become a symbol of 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 everything that is wrong. And, and I think we're going to talk a little more deeply about, about the, the industry and what's wrong and who doesn't say what when. But he, yes, okay, so he is a very bad guy. But when do these women not get to be seen only as victims? Well, right. If you say that, um, you know, she was traumatized and she didn't know what she was doing, fair. But like uh, uh, this lasted over years. And at what point are we dangerously coming close to saying women's choices don't matter and that they don't know how to protect themselves and they don't know what they're doing? This is the the line that is pretty dangerous. Now, an interesting dynamic that you described um, was captured in a line in that Dana Goodyear piece in The New Yorker uh, that you sent me that I thought was so good. And she's describing a lot of these encounters and she has a line that says, it would be the casting couch whether they consented or not. In other words, he thought they were in a casting couch situation. They did not. What happened became the casting couch. And then the question is, are they allowed to benefit from that? even if they didn't want it in the first place. It's really, really fascinating stuff. Well, I that's a very interesting question. I wonder, I mean, I haven't seen any uh, any one of his, the people that he assaulted, come out and say, you know, I benefited from this. Have we seen that? Or is that either A, will be, this person will be destroyed instantly, uh, or has anybody said this? Or or do you think that maybe there are people that have just like staying quiet about this? Oh, there's so many people staying quiet about this. I mean, you know, I think I, I was thinking that as I was watching, I've been watching a ton of Harvey Weinstein related stuff over the last week as I was waiting for this verdict to come down. Um, the jury deliberated for like more than 10 days. By Which was the way. weird. It took them a really long time to come to this. It was not, um, it was not a lock, obviously. And you can see that in, in, how you know how they landed on the different cases um but i was watching one woman after the other talk about the assault and i was thinking gosh you know i'd really love to hear from a woman that was like yep fucked him got the leading role ended up on vanity fair you know but you, you can't you'll first never of all if that, I, I was thinking if i were that woman first of all i just would shut up because, and it's not just that I'd be afraid people thought I was a slut and a whore or whatever people say. It would be that by saying that, I would make other women look like they didn't get it. Like they didn't get how it worked. It would look, it would, I just couldn't do it. It just, it's, it's so, you can't, you, it, it would go so against what the narrative and the momentum and the thrust right. and everything here. You just, you just can't. Now we do know, um, that, uh, apparently he, there's been talk for decades that he assaulted Gwyneth Paltrow and, you know, she then was starred in, uh, Shakespeare in Love and she won the Oscar and I guess the picture did too. I never saw it. Um, but it was, she did not make any claims, but apparently she told, oh, sorry, am I getting this wrong? Well, she told her friend, um, she told Brad Pitt that right, she had been assaulted by Weinstein and he, and he, um, he confronted Weinstein. Um, you know, Weinstein liked to tell the women that he'd slept with her. And that's well, how she got her roles. 
He often said this to women in in these hotel scenarios. Don't you want to know how Gwyneth Paltrow got her role? Oh, my God. I didn't. I never heard that. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. And, you know, she's stayed really quiet about this. And I think it's a, a, you know, my suspicion, having listened to all I've listened to, he made a move on her. She was like, what the fuck, Harvey? She told Brad Pitt, Brad Pitt went to Harvey, it stopped. And then he continued to use that story as though it was, you know, this is how it goes, ladies. You know, that's, I'm, that's my read, but I don't have special knowledge of, you know, what, what we do know is that she did continue to work with him many times. She, you know, after that happened, um, which we can either see as proof that it didn't happen again or proof that it was a transaction. I mean, I just don't know. We don't know enough about that particular story. Well, I would just say, and this, of course, I know nothing about. I know when Paltrow grew up in New York City, she went to Brealey, which is this very, very, you know, Tony girl school. I think I'm getting this right. Private school in Manhattan. Her father was a director. Her mother is Blythe Danner. They're sort of like Hollywood royalty. We're going to talk a little bit in the bonus about Nepo Babies, uh, which is the cover of uh, of a big story in New York, in Vulture uh, this week. Um, and she weighed about 102 pounds soaking wet. Mm-hmm. I somehow it just doesn't seem to me that she would have an ambition that she felt could only be fulfilled by sleeping with Harvey Weinstein. Well, right. She doesn't <laughs> need that uh, no. that that transaction, actually, because no. she's got so many other roads right. into this business. Right. I mean, we're, we're not like her boyfriend, Brad Pitt. Yeah, and she was already working uh, at the time when they were, I think, when they started to be boyfriend and girlfriend. I, I just feel like, you know, you, you there are definitely people that use sex as a transaction. We've heard about it in Hollywood for time immemorial. Um, I just doesn't strike me that she would be like, yeah, you know what? That's my ticket. I got to do that in order to get in order to get ahead in this town. So, so. the so the New York appeal. I mean, I'm sorry, the New York case, uh, as you correctly said, got him 23 years, but it has now gone up to a court of appeals. And so there's a possibility it will be overturned, which is why this Los Angeles case was actually high stakes. Um, The New York case is on appeal over something, and I'm going to maybe get it wrong, but called like the Molyneux rule which is about how many women you can bring or how many witnesses you can bring in to sort of create a pattern that don't have to do with the actual allegations. Hmm. And, you know, they brought in, I think, three different women in that New York case to create a pattern of abuse, even though it didn't have to do with the actual claims being made. Um, And apparently the decision of how many witnesses to bring in is at the judge's discretion. And the question is, was that too many? And it's, you know, it's an interesting thing that the, the, the scales of justice, you know, pivot and tip and somebody puts a thumb on one side and other, somebody else puts a thumb on the other. And it used to be back in the eighties, nineties and up for the longest time, women had such a hard time in these cases, you know, and they would bring up your history and what were you wearing? And, you know, were you drunk and all this stuff? And a lot of... How short was your skirt? 
Yeah. How short was your skirt? And we've moved away from a lot of that to the point where like with a lot of these women that were witnesses, we don't know much about, you know, you're not allowed to ask a lot of these questions. Meanwhile, the defendant you know, we can bring out all these other things to paint a pattern and hit you know, how, how short was his skirt, uh, metaphorically speaking. Right, right. Um, and so that's interesting. And we'll see if that gets appealed. But um, but so this Los Angeles case was um, was important for that reason. Can I talk a little bit about the four women in the case? You can. I just want to mention one thing. And she's outed her. She's named herself, I believe, a girl I went to high school with, actually grade school and high school. And her mother, her late mother, late, beautiful, beautiful mother was the librarian at our school, uh, Caitlin Delaney. She was one of the uh, plaintiffs or in, in the New York case, but I don't think she was one of the three. I think she was like four in like they didn't get to actually have their case be the one that he was going mm-hmm. up against, but she was very vocal about it. And she's an actress and she was uh she was assaulted by him. And then one other thing, and then we'll talk about that. I did want to say you started out by saying, you know, this case, there was talk of nothing but this for years. He was tried in the court of public opinion and 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 still is and always will be, and that's how he'll be remembered. Um, but I did after the verdict uh, came out immediately and then yesterday and then this morning, I went looking for articles like who's writing, who's writing the think piece now is doing it. It is crickets. It's crickets. I'll tell you, you had- who's doing it. I know. I know the answer to this. Okay. It's Canaletta. Is he still doing it? Oh, he's doing it now? He put out a book two years ago, I think, called Hollywood Ending that's about Harvey Weinstein, and I've been listening to it on Audible, and it's absolutely fantastic. Great, great. Canaletta is a New Yorker writer that profiled Weinstein in 2002, and this is a time when he could write about Weinstein's bullying. You know, he was a, you know, he was, everybody knew, (laughs) everybody really did know that Weinstein was a bully. There, you know, you know, the, the verdict's out about whether everybody knew he was assaulting people. Anyway, um, he wrote this in 2002 and they had one of the, they, they knew a story of, allega- you know, of a sexual assault, but they couldn't get the woman on record. She wouldn't talk. They couldn't include it. And I think it haunted him. So when Ronan Farrow puts the story together for NBC and gets dumped by NBC, it's Ken Aletta that says, hey, let me introduce you to David Remnick and, right. and right. You know, basically opens the door to Ronan Farrow publishing at The New Yorker. Well, Ken Aletta, you know, he never stopped reporting this tale and he has this book and and I did the same thing that you did. I went out there looking for the big story on Harvey Weinstein, Crickets, Crickets, and I found this book and it's it's absolutely fantastic. I want to talk to you a little bit more about what I've learned because, um, you know, We've we've spoken before that like the cultural appetite is is so much toward like scorn and judgment, but mine is so much more towards understanding. Yeah, I think yours is too. Yeah. Well, I will say, I mean, having watched uh, the Ronan Farrow the Catch and Kill podcast tapes, I had tried to listen to Catch and Kill, which came out a couple of years ago, and I it didn't really grab me. I just it it I felt a bit like I was being manipulated into like. Yeah. But like, you need to believe this. This is the only way it can possibly be. And I was like, uh, I kind of just didn't feel like I had enough information to feel that way. I felt a bit, again, I like I was being pushed toward a conclusion. But the 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 HBO series is quite uh, good, I thought. Yeah. I was pretty riveted. And I will say... As as and I, we we learned some really monstrous, disgusting things. I mean, 
a few things about Harvey Weinstein I really wish I could unsee or unknow. Um, well, they have to do with his genitals, mostly. Oh, my God. I, I I don't know what it's called, but he had some – I don't remember what it was called. He had some affliction where – oh, God. They your have to balls like, go up into your thigh. They have to sew your testicles onto your thighs. I mean, this is just, I'm so, I mean, I, I'm sorry. I feel bad for any human. I mean, I'm sure there are many people like, well, he fucking deserves it. Okay, fine. This is, you know, absolutely biblical, horrible, you know, gothic punishment. He's um, got a plague of locusts in his goddamn boxer briefs. In, in his scrotum. say one thing about like, that's unfortunate? Um, I, I will say when you, when you hear about the absolute repetitiveness of how he does this and what he does and the lines he uses and the exact mm-hmm. same sort of processes. And then the really, the thing that is really gross, he's like, oh no, don't, please don't expose me, my wife and children. This man is deeply, has a deep, deep problems. I mean, this is a problem fucking human being and I'm not giving him a pass at all for what he did. He's going to, he's going to go to prison if he is, if he's guilty of these things, which he seems to be. And and that's fine. I don't have a problem with this at all. I do think you're, what you're saying is like, this is a deeply sick person with a pathology that he is almost, he is um captive to. Like he can't, how do you keep doing this? What is it's almost like a teretic thing. Well, he's compulsive. It's a compulsive. Right. It's a compulsion he's, he's that really is really compulsive. It's all sorts of I mean, problems he, with um, boundaries and, and, you know, like in the eating too, the way he eats, oh. the way he, um, you know, interestingly, he was not a drinker, was never well, a drinker, he's got a, didn't like losing control. Um, but there but was that the one story, and uh, sex, I think it was in the dateline where he said, he said, you reject me because I'm fat. That was fascinating. That was one of, that was one of yeah, the most fascinating little exchanges in that particular documentary where uh, I think she was like an aspiring actress and model. And she describes a very familiar story of the whole, you know, hotel robe followed by the massage offer, followed by the and then she runs into the bathroom and locks herself in the bathroom. And he's pounding on the door and he's a big guy and it's so scary. And she yells at him something like, you are being naughty. Stop being a naughty boy. Yeah, she's, I think she's Australian. Stop being a naughty boy. And yeah. he, and she, he, like, and she basically, and when she opens up the door, he's on the, the bed and he's crying and he says, you don't like me because I'm fat. Now, I am sure there are people like that have heard this story or listened to us and be like, oh, who the fuck cares? It's all bullshit. It's crocodile tears. Maybe. I I, I just see this absolutely damaged, messed up, really, really someone in terrible fucking shape who is foisting it onto other people. So I think one of the places where I part with a lot of modern discourse is I don't like calling people monsters. I'm sure I've done it before, but I, don't, I really don't like it. Mm-hmm. Like when people say they're monstrous, the other thing you hear online is like human garbage. He's human garbage. And I just, I don't mm-hmm. believe in calling people human garbage. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I'm not, I don't really have an opinion about whether or not Harvey Weinstein is a monster because I don't really know what that means to other people. But I will tell you that if he is, he's a monster that we made. Mm-hmm. He didn't just pop out like this. He was shaped by his culture, his family, and a really crazy industry. And with that in mind, I think it is 
important to understand how that happened? I agree with you to a certain extent. I have some experience, including uh, people in my own family, who have certain predilections and uh, toward um, fabulism and um, kind of deceit. And I do believe that if we abet that for whatever reasons are, are, you know, if it was my grandfather and what he did and terrorized my grandmother and then he could get away. And then it's like his, his little world that he's constructing, which is really based on, it's, it's a lie in many ways. Um, but if it's abetted, then it grows, right? I wonder, it's something I've written about a lot. I do think people come out with a certain, um, a predilection, a Harvey Weinstein, the things that were allowed to grow in Harvey Weinstein because exactly as you say, because of the culture, because of Hollywood, because of the yesing. I think he was, you know, there's a, Sarah, there could be, if it's Hollywood that did this, then why are there not 8 million Harvey Weinstein? I didn't tell you that Hollywood did this. I said that there were a combination of factors that shaped him in this direction. It's true that people have certain you know, hormonal or psychological predilections when they're born. But it's like the culture shapes that. Look, people like that used to go to war, kill people, and become heroes. So now we call them sociopaths. It, it, it's, it's a little bit... It, I just don't believe that people are born... I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm a fucking sucker, man. I don't believe people are born bad. I believe that, like, the moment chooses them or shapes them and... There are certain things that would have worked in one context, like being able to lie and and manipulate your way out of something that works really well. in like if you're poor and you need to get things for your family and in another context, that's terrible. But, you know, I, I, I am I'm dangerously close to like moral relativism on this stuff. So, so, so I won't go into it too much because I don't want to get over my skis about arguing about, you know, where this came from and how this came from and whatever. I just no, but tell I you do- that like, okay, look also, by the way, Kenaletta thinks he's a sociopath. He flat out just says the guy's a sociopath. I, I, I'm going to agree with that only having written about so many and met so many and seen how easy it is for them to lie and seen how easy it is with, from, 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 for Harvey Weinstein to go from like saying to, to threatening someone to wheedling to crying and saying, don't hurt my family. And then turning around again and saying, I'm going to get you. This is somebody that has these weird sociopathic tendencies. But I do think one thing, and I do want to hear about the, 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 uh, yeah, we're 30 minutes in. I haven't gone to the, gotten to the LA. Right. We're gonna yet. Th- but I, but what I do want to talk about, which also kind of ties into later what we're going to talk about Twitter. It's like, I do think it's interesting and important to get under the nub of some of this, which is why do people continue to stay fucking silent? And you had a few people talk about in in both the uh, catch and kill and also the dateline thing, admit, I I should have said something. I should have said something. I should have. And some people did. They protected other people. But mostly it was just like everybody knew and nobody said it. That's a problem that can be fixed. That can be fixed. Anyway, let's talk about let's talk well, about. Well, and there, the and before you leave that, because you can't just drop that and then and then disappear <laughs> from the room. Um, 
you know, I think there's also like a really complex equation around what are we responsible in other people's choices. And, you know, a lot of the got like the male associates at Merrimax understood him to be a womanizer. And they also understood him to be a bully physically. And one of them says, like, why on earth did I not realize that those two things would combine forces, you know? Right, right. You know, right. but the question is, like, to what extent is it his business to find that out? If nobody has told him, if if other people aren't saying that, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. What do we, what do we owe to the people in our lives and the people around us? You know, I have bosses that have, I have bosses in my past that were bullies and also fucking lovable. I loved, I have a boss that was such an, had such an explosive temper that he ended up on like antipsychotic medications and he was finally like better. But like, I adore him so much. And, you know, if people like, we used to tell stories about, like funny stories about like when he kicked the side of a desk so much he dented the side. And it's like, those were funny stories to us. Now you tell them and it's like, why didn't you say anything? Well, I mean, say what? To who? So one thing about sociopaths, what they do is they keep they keep their, their their environments, whether it's a work environment or a family environment, they keep everything insecure. And that's a tactic, okay? Like, because if you don't know, like if Harvey Weinstein says, calls you at three in the morning and says, I need everything by 5 a.m., like you're constantly in this hyper alert, hyper um, stressful situation. That's how he ran it. And first of all, the movie business is stressful enough, okay? So you keep people insecure like this guy at Miramax who's like, I, why didn't I put these things together? But his world is also being completely kept at a fraught environment at all times. So it's like, yeah, you're right. It's like, well, I, I'm just trying to like keep my freaking cool here and get the work done. And now I also have to think about maybe what might be happening with this actress that I have to pay $20,000 to fly her. But okay, you know where it then can start? And this is, I mean, we're always going to go back to this. It starts with, first of all, hopefully not making a bad decision and, and getting in this crazy situation in Harvey uh, Weinstein's hotel room. But okay, that's not really your fault because you were a trusting person and he you trusted that you were going to go have There's a conversation. There's some bait and switches here too, just what? in oh. their defenses, like really oh. bad bait and switches. Oh yeah, completely. But they also, they have to speak up. You have to speak up. And finally, after decades, women started speaking up. And that is what it took to change this to a certain extent is not to be ashamed, not say it was your fault, not say it was like the too short a skirt. Um, and I think, you know, when people started speaking up, then we were able to kind of open the bandage on this absolutely festering situation. Um, I mean, it still will be fascinating to think about what Mr. Weinstein, you know, what he goes through in his brain. But I think you're right about the the people that worked with him or the culture in Hollywood. You know, how is it their responsibility to do it? But still, but still, I think I think there were probably more people who could have put the pieces together or said something. I don't know who they would have taken. Who would they have taken it to, Sarah? Okay, I, I feel like uh, Harvey Weinstein is assaulting women. I mean, you saw, what is her name? The reporter who sat down with Weinstein and, she, and he said, what do you want to know? And she said, well, I hear you rape women. 
Kim Who's Masters. That Kim Masters. Um, you know, somebody obviously was feeding her that information, right? Where do you take this information if you're a producer or if you're a line producer on something or if you're the accountant? And where do you take this information? So I just want to say something because I feel like the listeners are going to be yelling at me right now because I just let everybody off the hook with what I said earlier. And I didn't mean to because I actually think there is a lot of like people that could have said something or could have. I I just. I think it's a rotten industry. (laughs) Like, I think it's like a rotten industry. And then when you see rotten things the reasonable thing to say is this is the way it works and that that keeps a lot of things in place you know that's what the women are saying that's what the men are saying um you know and at the end of the day what you want is to make art that matters and or be famous you know whatever you're your thing is in that industry because there's a lot of different things that that spur people on to make money to to be famous also to be part of this magic making machine that has shaped culture and people's childhoods and made the difference in people's lives i mean i am a child of the silver screen i thought i sought escapism and love and companionship and wisdom through those movies like Harvey Weinstein did, like a lot of those women that showed up in his hotel room wanting to be part of the magic machine. And when you see something like that interaction or you hear about it, it's like, well, I guess that's how it works. I guess this is just how it works. And I never knew how it worked. You know, it's like when I found out all the celebrities got gift bags at the Oscars, I was like, oh, that's how it works. I didn't know that's how it works. That's a good, that's a good, that's a good analogy. You know, these gift bags are like $20,000 worth of stuff, you know, earrings and whatever, vacations. It's like, well, it's a transaction. Um, But I I will just repeat that if you're working, you know, there are good movie sets and bad movie sets. There are good bosses and there are bad bosses. Harvey Weinstein, I think, whether he did this deliberately or not, kept everybody scared who worked with him. Or that's what it's sounding like now. And if you're scared and you don't feel like you have control, it's hard to take care of other things. It's just hard. And that may be deliberate. And also very interesting. I, I don't, I remember Miramax used to be the place that was able to combine like a, a movie that you really wanted to see, but it also was smart and yes. and sexy and and like transcendent and starry and it was wonderful. It's it's sort of interesting that this person I don't you know he was a producer he wasn't a director, but somehow and you know was he the person that was able to make this happen or was it just that he created the sort of he was part of building the machine and everybody else brought all their energies there and made it happen. And he really was just this sort of terrible kind of figurehead. Um, He was a genius. A lot of people described him as a genius. Somebody called him a safe cracker when it came to movie narrative. Like he just understood how to unlock a story in the most amazing way. But I want to tell you about two things. I want to tell you about Harvey Weinstein's childhood and where he came from. And then I want to tell you about the LA case. Which one do you want to hear first? Well, let's start with the childhood. Let's go sequentially. So this is coming from Canaletta's book, which again is called Hollywood Ending. And it is just 
masterful. I mean, this is a this is a fantastic writer with like the way he deploys details is just wonderful. Um, first of all, did you know Merrimax was a portmanteau of his parents' name? I did. You did. Miriam did. and Max. Mi- Mira and Max. Right. Miriam. Oh, okay. And uh, so Harvey Weinstein grew up in Flushing, Queens. And he was in a working class family. And he had a younger brother named Bob. And his father was kind of a working class guy who put all his money in at one point trying to create a diamond business and it fell apart and he was mostly just a cog. His mother, though, was a very domineering figure. She had fiery red hair and the kids in the neighborhood, they wouldn't play over at the house because she yelled so much. (laughs) Okay, there we go. (laughs) Here we go. And they used to call her the boys, Harvey and Bob. They used to call her Portnoy's mother, which if you're familiar with Portnoy's complaint, the Philip Roth book, this is a very overbearing mother. She read Vogue magazine. She grew up on these tales of glamour and she wanted that. And that's not what they had. And she could never, you know, she could never rest the part of herself that, that was so ambitious and stuck in this small life. And her son, Bob Weinstein, Describes her as a woman born out of another time. Like in another age, she would have been a Sheryl Sandberg. You know, because she was so full of ambition. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. A lot of people, it's easy to think you'd be a Sheryl Sandberg until you end up, you know, applying for jobs at Facebook and realize that you don't even get hired. Yeah. But anyway, I'm willing to believe that she was burning with ambition in a way that her husband wasn't. And... She used to bully Harvey. Funny that. She asked him in front of the kids that were over there, you know, what are you doing eating that bagel? You're too fat. Oh, this is just, oh boy. (laughs) You see a pattern? I'm seeing a pattern. Yeah. Harvey and Bob were best friends. Their father had instilled in them this idea that they would be like the Kennedy brothers. You know, you always look out for each other. They used to, the stories are so sweet. They used to stay up at night listening to baseball, Yankee games on the transistor radio in their room. Weekends, they start going to the movies. The, The magic machine, you know, they see Spartacus. They see these, you know, these big movies, like how can I be part of that? Harvey's not a very, um, remarkable student. People don't really remember him. Um, he did skip a grade, so he was young for his high school and he wasn't particularly attractive. One of the girls that worked with him on the newspaper described him as kind of arrogant and bullying. And, you know, she Mm -hmm. suspected that it was sort of like hiding his insecurity, but at the same time, that doesn't matter, but because you're just an asshole. Bullies are always hiding their insecurity. Right. I mean, (laughs) yeah, like, yeah, like, like newsflash. Yeah. It's the story of every bully. Every bully. And so he ends up going to, I think it's like SUNY Buffalo or something like that. Yes, it is. Um, and he takes some classes in like pop music because he's like, this sounds cool. And But he ends up dropping out because he becomes involved in the music industry. Right. And he right. becomes a music promoter. But, you know, he's always been a hustler all along. Um, there's a great story of him selling... I think it's like Girl Scout, Boy Scout cookies, but 
Boy Scout cookies what? don't exist. No. Maybe it's like maybe it's like school fair cookies. But anyway, he doubles the price and he pockets the difference. <laughs> And he also, you should say, I, I know a little bit about this. I mean, he became an extremely successful music producer in Buffalo, like bringing like the Stones and like these crazy big uh, Frank Sinatra. There's pictures of him, like 19-year-old Harvey with Frank Sinatra and Mick Jagger. You know, he he had some pretty hot, fast success out of the gate. So, Yeah, that's exactly right. And he also says that he was really shaped by that debauchery of the sex, drugs, and rock and roll music industry. You know, I mean, he grew up at a time when he wore a suit and tie to class, but then he had emerged into the seventies where it was this real Bacchanal and he is a libertine. I mean, you Uh take one look at that man. I mean, he is, he does not know modesty, Christian modesty. And I mean that in the Mm -hmm. sort of like, Mm -hmm. like moderation Mm -hmm. is what I meant to say. Um, he becomes very successful as a music promoter and he winds up wanting to start a movie business with his brother. Um, oh, there's one story that I want to tell you about this movie that changed their life because they were watching all these like sandals and swords movies, but then they find out about this movie called 400 Blows. This is Bob and Harvey, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're 14. Yeah, Harvey's 14. He doesn't know who Truffaut is. And they think it's a porn movie. Oh, God, no, Sarah, no. Yes. <laughs> and so, and if you don't know, this is um, Le Quatre Sans Coups, which is one of the classic coming-of-age bo- uh, movies of the French New Wave by Francois Truffaut, but it is called in English 400 Blows, which is a little bit of a head shaker. And they get all their guy friends together, and they go oh, to this God. movie, and all the guy friends leave. They're like, screw this. And Harvey and Bob stay because they're so riveted. This is They've never seen a story like this told before, and that becomes kind of the guiding light that they want to tell stories like this. So they put together, they put together um, a movie company, Miriam plus Max. Miriam is so happy. She's, you know, she feels like, you know, they're going to give her access. Her sons are going to right the wrongs. They're going to give her access to that vogue life of glamour. Hmm. And uh, the, the, the company is pretty unsuccessful for a while. I didn't realize that. It was a decade before they really started hitting their groove and they barely, they barely hung on. Um, do you know the movie that broke Miramax? I'd forgotten. Um, when I say broke, I mean broke into the mainstream. Uh, no. Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Oh, wow. That was a... That was groundbreaking when that yep. came out. That was like mind blowing for all of us. I mean, I was uh, already grown up enough to go see that, and in in LA, I believe. I think I was visiting Los Angeles before I lived there and, and saw it. And it was like, it was sort of, sort of like when I read Mary Gateskill for the first time, and I was like, "Wait, you can write like that? You saw yes. that movie? Like, wait, you can make movies like that? Yes, yeah." Steven Soderbergh, his first yeah, film, he's and he's great. The Weinstein brothers saw it, I want to say at Sundance, and when Sundance was just starting out, and Weinstein showed it to the staff at Miramax. I'm sorry, Bob Weinstein showed it to the staff. He was the one that really championed this, and he's he and all the staff was kind of like, this is boring, and he stood up, and he was like, 
this movie's going to make $17 million. And Harvey Weinstein was like, eh, it'll make seven. But they paid a million dollars for it and it made 25. There we go. And it was the movie that opened the floodgates on this era of 90s indie filmmaking that was, for my money, the golden age of cinema. Now, um, that's going to be fighting words for anybody that, that, you know, knows anything about 70s filmmaking. But maybe it's because I was coming of age. Maybe it's because those movies combined 70s filmmaking with a sort of razzle-dazzle a la Tarantino, Paul Thomas Anderson, Wes Anderson that I like better than, say, Easy Rider. You know, I don't don't like Easy Rider. (laughs) I do like uh, Bonnie and Clyde, Harold and Maude. You know, 70s movies, they're amazing. But, um... The Graduate, Jesus. But but those 90s movies are something else, and that is Miramax. So as he's starting to rise, I mean, you know, Miriam also becomes a very beloved figure at Miramax Studios. You know, Harvey's the bully. Miriam's coming in and making food for everyone, and how's your relationship, and what can I do, and da-da-da-da-da-da-da. She's a grandmother figure in a way that she could never be a mother, right? And maybe she's also like, Getting the life she finally wanted. She doesn't have to be so rageful anymore. But this behavior of Harvey's, you know, it starts to show itself. And do we know uh, when the very first sort of whispers or accusations, because when you're watching these these uh, documentaries, it's like decades. People were silent for yeah. decades. So 70s? So the first allegation that I think we know about is in, I think she is interviewed in that Frontline documentary that we watched. She was working on a movie with him when she was about 24, and this is like in the 80s. And she has some script questions. She comes to his hotel room. He's got a towel wrapped around his waist and nothing right. else. Right. He drops it and she's like, oh, God. Okay. I guess I'll just keep talking. And again, she actually says, I guess this is the way it works. She doesn't know. That's and right. so they sit down. He puts a file on his lap over his you know what. And he keeps kind of pointing to it like, like what, what about, about this these questions? She needed some checks or something signed. And he's like, what about this check? What about this check? <laughs> That's not funny. It's not a good joke. It's not. I, I, I didn't think that was a good funny joke. Harvey Weinstein. Uh, no, I just laughed really hard because it's it's so it's 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 sad, but it's almost comical. It's, it's, it's almost comical because it's. If it weren't so fucking tragic, because it's so pathetic. Can I? Okay, I want to add something here, which I about this whole thing. So I don't know if uh, Harvey Weinstein has ever met a woman, but like the way you might want to like get your way or woo her is not exactly walking out of the bathroom with a towel and then dropping the towel. This is like, like that. How could somebody possibly think? Well, this is this. I'm going to get my way. Okay, get so, my way now. I, so I have a theory. Okay. His compulsion is not sex. The compulsion Dominic. is being humiliated. Oh, he wants to be humiliated? Or he He's, wants to yeah, humiliate the woman? it's got to be humiliation by beautiful women. And it's got, to, I, my theory is it's a repetition of his mother humiliating him as a younger boy. So, okay, he comes out of the bathroom with the towel. 
And she's standing there sort of like shell-shocked. And then he's like, well, now it's time to drop the towel. I think it's a combination maybe of being humiliated, but also making her afraid. He's got to get some sort of rush out of making this person, shocking this person. So I, this is- I, I'm sorry, I should, I should clarify. It's a total domination move. So yeah. he is... He is uniquely compulsive around domination with everybody. Yes. You know, it's, yes, it's with for sure. everybody at the for company. Sure. He, he pulls these power moves. He will call right. you at night. He will tell you you're ruined. He will do like all of that. That is happening here and there's no question about it. But I'm telling you the kink, the part he might not even be aware of, the thing that's operating under the surface, in my opinion, I am not a therapist, but I was raised by one. Um. <laughs> is I think he has some sort of weird kink for being ashamed, being humiliated. Because well, he keeps doing these things like, look at me, look at me, look at my penis. And it's like his penis is, it's, the, women will later describe it as like fish-like. I, I, I hate to say it. And I'm not, I, I, when you told me what the, what the actual disease was, and then I Googled it, I was like, I am so very, I Google image. I was so very sorry. There is that. some kind of compulsion and maybe we have a therapist or maybe, you know, like, cause I'm just spitballing here. And, you know, this is very armchair Freudian analysis over here on, on the part of Sarah Heppola. But I'm just telling you that, that to me, this Maybe he keeps doing it because it does work sometimes. So, like, maybe that's the answer, is that even though it's clumsy, he has no incentive to change it because it actually works for whatever he wants, if that makes sense. That, right, because then if he he either gets the humiliation hit, A, or he gets the sex, B. But what's interesting is that when we talked about that woman who locked herself in the bathroom and she she mimics, she says what she says, she says, you naughty boy. And when it, she said that and comes out and who's crying, I was like, Wow. At the time when I saw this, I was like, that worked. You call him a naughty. You could say, you pig, I'm afraid. I'm doing ah, screaming. Going. No, 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 no. You call him a naughty boy, he breaks. He which breaks. I'm just I'm just supporting your theory here, Sarah Hepla, not a therapist. It's, it's it's so it's so fascinating. I mean, I and and you know, and who knows if those were crocodile tears or what, but I also I thought about that thing he said to her, you know, you don't like me because I'm fat. And that was so like that really hit me because here is somebody who has marshaled the forces of cultural power. He has private planes, he has Brad Pitt on speed dial, he has he can put you in a movie, he can do all these things, and the girls still don't want to sleep with him. Why? Because he's fat like his mama told him. And, you know, I that, it hit me. It hit yeah. me. And I have to tell you, all these years, we're now, I guess, five years into hearing stories about Harvey Weinstein, the monster. I cringe when people, and they describe him like this all the time, describe him as unfuckable, troll-like, and disgusting. Comedians describe him that way. Um, People on Twitter describe him that way. I just think that is not how we describe people. And and by the way, he's not like, and just to be play devil's advocate, I'm probably getting myself canceled as I say this, but he's not unfuckable. He's not. He had wives. Children. He had children. Yeah. 
So he had beautiful women on his arm. He had incredible charm. Yeah. He had a fucked up eye because he got an injury um, when he was 10 years old because he was playing Davy Crockett and he accidentally hurt himself with a fake musket and he only had one eye for months and that's when he started reading novels. He read Gone with the Wind and he was swept away by it. I mean, you know, like this is, I just, this is the thing. It's like, okay, so this guy is like the star of Hollywood and and Meryl Streep calls him God from the Oscar stage and everyone is so fascinated about this guy until these, until these allegations come out and and then we spend three months calling him a monster, eating up all the disgusting porn in reverse details of those of those assaults. And then we just say, I don't give a shit about him. I you know. Fuck for, that guy. And it's just that not at all uh, how my mind works. First of all, I always uh, admire you as a human and as a writer. Um, I hope with the work that I do. I complicate stories because it's, I think it's attendant upon us as, as humans, if we want to understand the human race and why we're here and why people do things, it's attendant upon us to complicate stories. And I appreciate you complicate, complicating his story because, but that's not what people do. People, they either don't have the time or they're afraid, or they feel that they just need to emote. They feel powerless or they want to be part of the crowd. So it's just easier to call him a disgusting, unfuckable monster. I don't think, um, I don't think we learn anything the second time we hear that. And we certainly don't learn anything the 6,000th time we hear that. But you know what? That's how most people are going to operate. Um, I appreciate you and Canaletta uh, complicating the story. Because if we don't, when I, when I wrote my book to the bridge and people said, I'll never understand how a mother could kill her child. And then when they read the book, they get to the end and they say, well, I didn't think I could, but now I do have some understanding. I think that's important. I think it's important to have some understanding as opposed to just labeling people monstrous. Because what do we learn when we do that? When we say monster, close the door. What do we learn for like the next time? What do we learn for how maybe we should operate better? What do we, how do we learn to maybe look out for things if we don't actually take a look? Well, and I will never dissuade you from complimenting me with, which is something that I really like about you is the way the many times that you compliment me. But I'm glad that you also brought it uh, uh, around to Kenaletta because that's really what uh, that little rage session was about. That rage session was about gratitude for a writer, uh, a no shit writer that wanted to bring me this story in full complexity. I'm listening to that on Audible. And it's really good. Uh, so I just give that uh, recommendation for anybody that's also looking for stuff to listen to. Sometimes I can't listen to nonfiction books, you know, because they're too full of like uh, data. But oh, see, this one is a really gripping and it's character driven and it's just it's it's great. I'm the opposite. I I can't really listen to fiction on uh, I can't listen to fiction, but I can listen to nonfiction all day. One of the things I don't uh I, I love living in New York. There's only two things I 
don't really like about living in New York. One of the supermarkets and, and then having to like schlep things up four flights of stairs. Um, but I miss being in the car for long periods of time. Um, as some people know, I love to take like 5,000 mile driving trips, but also when mm-hmm. you lived in Portland or Los Angeles, you're just in the car for an hour or two hours and you get to listen to all these great things on tape and you listen, you live in Texas. So you've got these vast distances you get to drive and, um, listen to this. I wanted to say something. We're, we're going to go long on this episode, which is great. And in the bonus, we're going to be talking about some things, but I want to welcome our new listeners, uh, that we, you know, we, we've just been gaining a bunch of people that are, that are coming over to listen, listen to smoke and so we thank you for being here. Uh, welcome, um, especially to the new paid subscribers. That's really fun to see and to watch that tick up. Um, I have a question anyway. for you. I have a question. Yes. yes, yes. What's the name of our podcast? The name of this podcast is Smoke Em If You Got Them. And, ding, 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 ding. Uh, and we're happy to be here. So we, we let's let's talk a little more a bit about Weinstein and wrap him up before we we we've got man we got a lot to talk about this morning. No, well, I feel like can I, can I just talk about the LA trial really? Yes, quick? yes. No, I want let no, I, I don't do it quick. You know what? Okay. Uh, listen, I are we usually come in at about an hour and a half. Last time we were a bit long. I don't care if we go long, and I don't think the listeners mind. So let's do it. Well, I just think it's important to explain this particular trial and what happened. So there were originally five Jane Doe's in this case. They went down to four. We don't know why. The first Jane Doe, which is the one that ended in the conviction, um, she was like an Italian model. Um, and but not, she not t- Ambra, not the one in New York. What? The one in oh, you're talking about you're talking about the LA trial. The one in New York that kind of broke it was uh, Ambra Guitares, wasn't she? The one that yeah, but she's not part of like she. That's what I'm saying. You just said Italian model. She was also an Italian model. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. This is but a different, different. Yes. Okay. You're talking about the woman whose voice you hear if you've heard that clip of of Harvey yes. Weinstein arguing with. Uh, an an actress model in the hallway and he's like don't ruin this for five minutes and it's uh, it's so disgusting and then that gets used in the new yorker uh profile and or or takedown and then that woman is interviewed on catch and kill the documentary that we watched which was really good and she came to life in a really awesome way didn't you think she did, but I will also say that in the dateline which was which was a year earlier before the catch and kill they talked about how uh, um, uh, Weinstein's lawyers tried to just like paint her as like a prostitute and she was like a bad person and a bad actor, meaning not an actress actor, but you know, bad actor and all of this. They'd really tried to slime her and, um, it didn't work. That was nice. She stood up for herself. So yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Different, so different I'm Italian sorry. Actress. So this is, this woman is actually, I don't know if she's Italian or not. She's a European model and actress, but they met okay. at an Italian film festival. Okay. So that's why I was a little confused. And she really doesn't know him. And he just shows up at her hotel room. And she says that he raped her in the Beverly Hills Hotel. And the defense really didn't have an argument against this. They just said that she made it up. And, you know, the jury doesn't buy it. Like, these cases are kind of interesting. They are classic he said, she said. And those didn't used to go to trial because there isn't much evidence trail. With this one in particular. Like, they don't, like, it's... She said this happened. He said this happened. Um, usually, if you don't have some kind of proof, proof, that's not going to go to trial. And yet, I think the fact that the jury knows this is such a pattern for him. Yeah. 
it, it's it's you know you can say she made it all up, but it's like okay, it sounds an awful lot like everybody else. And had she told people like at the time? I don't, you know, I don't know, you know but you don't um. Know. But I also don't think that she had a relationship with him afterwards. And 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 the the longer relationships with him, I think, are are becoming a problem for these juries. They're they're having a hard time understanding why you stayed friends with the guy that you say raped you. So Jane and again, that was the one on which he was found guilty. Jane Doe number two is a model and actress named Lauren Young. And she says Weinstein cornered her in a hotel bathroom during a business meeting um, that was supposed to take place in a hotel lobby. And then he masturbated in front of her and groped her breasts afterward. And she claims that she was this whole thing was set up by a female assistant who kind of just stood outside. And um, I don't know why they ended up hung on the jury ended up hung on this case. But I think it had to do with all these details about whether or not Weinstein could have ripped off her dress because it actually had a button. And like, oh, the, you like can the, rip buttons. You can rip off buttons. I've no, but a buttons. button in the back. A button in the back. And then, well, and, and, and anyway, I, I don't know, but they that this one didn't. This one didn't fly didn't for them, jump. and okay. I'm not entirely sure why. What okay. I followed were the next two. Uh, a lot more. So Jane Doe 3 is a massage therapist. She actually came into work, unlike all these other women that were like, you know, yep. tricked into a massage. She actually finally hired one. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and then... Wait a minute. I could just hire a massage? <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, you know, so she testifies that the first time she worked with him, he abruptly changed his demeanor during a massage cornered her in the hotel bathroom and masturbated in front of her, groping her breasts and yelling at her. He said, look at me. Tell me how big my cock is. Look at me. Look at me. Fucking look at me. Oh, God. Oh. Oh, we should just, sorry, if people didn't know, the reason we say, oh, you could finally hire a masseuse is because when he got these women into his room, he always said, you know, I need, could you just give me a massage? Like this, he must have said this hundreds of times to different women. So. The old massage, give me a massage routine. Am I wrong in saying that I did? Do I recall that that massage therapist, even after that incident, went back a second time to give yeah. him a massage? That's the problem. That's the problem here. So oh. he tells her. He tells her after this happens, he 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 masturbates on the floor. He he comes on the floor, and then she, as she's leaving, he's like, "Hey, I'm going to get you a book deal." Um, let me get your phone. Let me get your address. I want to send you some books. And she gives him her address. And, you know, during the trial, they're like, why did you give that to him? And she's like, I don't know. Well, she, well, she freaked out. And I sympathize with that. I do, too. And I actually don't find that so weird. If no, I don't find just, it weird at all. You'd be like, I just want to I just have to do what I need to do to get the fuck out of here right now. I need to get out of here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. But the weird part is that she goes back and she books him again. And that one, nobody could ever, they, people can't. You can't get over it. And she's, I think there were meetings about the book. It's just, you, why would you go back and book that person? It just, it's too hard to. Too hard to get over. Yes. Agreed. The fourth one is the most controversial. This is Jennifer Siebel Newsom. This is the wife of Gavin Newsom. Um. The governor of California. The governor of California. She was an aspiring actress in 2005. 
Um, let's see. Um, there was something I wanted to read from the Dana. Is her name Dana Goodyear? Goodyear. Yeah. And I think she's part of the, the Goodyear family, Goodyear Tires. No That's, way. Yeah. 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 Like, Dang, I don't know. Nepo grandfather. Babies. Yeah, she's a, she's a, she's a, you know, she had a great, great podcast. I'm going to find the name of it. I'm not remembering it now, but about uh, murders in, um, in like camping areas and national forests in California. Ooh. It's super good. I'll find the, I'll find a link to it. Well, she's a really good writer. That New Yorker piece inc- was exceptionally well written. She's an incredible writer. No, but there were, de- there were details in that that I, that I thought were, that were new to me and I thought it was really interesting. She's describing Jennifer Siebel Newsom and she says she's 31 years old, a graduate of Stanford and Stanford's business school, who had been a starter on the women's junior national soccer team and worked in Botswana for Conservation International. Now, I stopped while I was reading and I was like, why the fuck does this person want to be an actress? That's uh, I can't answer that. Maybe she wants fame. I don't know. I, I mean, you you are you have all this stuff that you do, and you're like, oh, I'm gonna be an actress. That to me was just one of those moments that I'm not blaming her. I'm saying this is a messed up culture that we live in. When somebody with that kind of pedigree turns around and decides they want to throw their their chips in on acting, it just seems really, really strange to me. So, so I have a question. I, sorry. I I wrote a little piece about how um, my sister-in-law, who was an artist and a dancer, someone once said to her, oh, you should meet this guy. He's a director and blah, blah, blah. So she went. Like, she wasn't interested in being an actress, but it was like yeah. this opportunity opened up to her. Of course, it turned out to be this horrible, fake, awful man who said he had a 26-inch penis. But in any case, um, I'll, I'll put a link to that story. But um, I wonder, and, and do we find out ever how Jennifer wound up meeting? Like, why was she meeting him? Did someone say you should really meet him? You're a beautiful mm-hmm. young woman and he's got this part. You might be great for it. Was it one of those things? Like, what the it hell? Was. I'll go. Okay. Okay. Yeah, so it wasn't it like was. she was like clawing and, and, the wall. And I'm, pretty sure, and I'm pretty sure it was another one that was like, hey, Jennifer, meet me downstairs in the lobby. Oh, you know what? Meet me in my hotel room. And, you know, again, it's just kind of like, I guess that's how it works. And so she goes in there and at some point he does the whole like, uh, hotel room robe massage routine and and basically they according to so what she says is and then he raped me but then what also happens is that she fakes an orgasm to make that go make faster it stop. yeah make it stop and then when she jacks him off Sorry for the coarse language. No, it's strokes okay. his whatever's left. Johnny anyway. Roger. <laughs> That's what yeah. I always call it. Yeah, but yeah, um, <laughs> she makes pleasure noises to try to get out of it. Okay, all of this is fair and fine. I mean, this is actually what women have done in t- through time immemorial to basically get out of things. But the problem is we have to sit here and think, is it reasonable that Harvey Weinstein knows that this is not wanted when she is having an orgasm and making pleasure noises? I think we mentioned this on an earlier it, – it's, it's very difficult. Now, we don't know – I mean, I'm sure she described on the stand – how it went down. Like, did he wrestle her onto the bed? Did she go right. voluntarily onto the bed? I don't know. Uh, maybe we do know from the transcripts. But it, 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 I think it's sort of a reasonable 
question. Uh, like, but I will say, and I don't know where I saw this. Didn't didn't his defense attorney say something like she was just a dumb bimbo or something? This really, really pejorative. Like, this is a woman, she's gone to Stanford, graduate school, and like, what? How can you try to paint her? What? This That's a losing, to me, that seems like a losing defense. So Weinstein's defense attorneys were pretty aggressive. And the theory on that from a couple things I listened to were was that he didn't feel like his earlier lawyers in the New York trial had been aggressive enough. So these guys really went hard. And one of the things that one of the defense attorneys said in an opening statement was like, Jennifer Siebel Newsom is here for her 15 minutes of fame. And if she... You know, it, but the truth is that she's just another bimbo who slept with Harvey Weinstein for a role. And, you know, it's really hard to see how that serves that their side. I mean, even just the the use of the word bimbo it's is incredible. like, okay, well, you just seem really out of touch. And it seems like 1980, yeah. first of nice, all. Exactly. Also, wait, did she get a role? No, I don't. I, I can't remember. So she did. I don't think she did get a role. A, B. She's the wife of the governor of California. I, I would say she's got some limelight if she wants it. Or I guess she wasn't. She wasn't. Anyway. So, but she did it not. It was bad. It was a bad strategic move, and it's it's and it's morally gross. Um, it was shocking in the sense that it it blew so hard in the face of how we're supposed to speak to alleged victims on the stand. I mean, you know, the, you don't hear that stuff anymore. You used to hear it in courtrooms. But so, but it's like to call someone a bimbo and uh, it's just it's it's a little wild. And what happened in her? So what was what what happened with the jury? So with, the problem with her? with her was that again, she continues the relationship. You know, there's a lot what? of emails that continue like but this is coming from a variety uh report that interviewed some of the jurors, the jurors the rural jurors, um, several jurors said they were troubled that she had exchanged dozens of emails with Weinstein after the alleged rape. In those emails, she sought meetings with Weinstein and asked for campaign, campaign contributions on behalf of her husband, who was the mayor of San Francisco at the time. Asked if there was anything the prosecution could have done differently to secure a conviction, one of the jurors said, maybe make those emails go away. Uh well, you, but that also could cut the other way. It's like, well, because this wasn't happening yet, meaning Harvey Weinstein was not, his head was not on the chopping block when she was asking for those campaign donations, right? Right. So maybe it's like, well, I've got some goods on him. I'm going to ask and he's going to give it to me. He's going to give me what I want because he knows I've got some goods here. That I mean, makes sense. I, but right? once you've made it a transaction, then can, even if it wasn't your desire to have a transaction in the first place. Can you turn around and say, I didn't want that transaction? Well, that's right. I mean, she then, she kind of sealed the, if there was going to be a case moving forward, she she kind of, she screwed it at that point. And I guess the jur jury felt the same way. Now, I do know that Newsom returned that money. Yeah, he did. More, more recently. Not that he's, a, I'm, a, I, I'm not a fan of the guy at all. Um, just not that that's either here. Well, I I don't know Jennifer Siebel Newsom. Um, you know, I I I wasn't. You know, we don't have video of the courtroom, so you're only reading these people's 
words and I don't get a sense of tone or charm or even like, like when I read those, you know, she went to Stanford, she did this, that, and the other thing. I'm like, wow, this person is really impressive. She's this person seems really like a very strong, impressive woman. I don't know her story. I don't know anything about her. But I can tell you that this was the part of the story that never quite fit to me because of the campaign emails, but also the faked orgasm and like all of it. Like, my, like I'm okay. Like I'm trying. I want to be on your side. Like this wasn't right, but then you add like how many years have gone by. I mean, there's a reason we have statute of limitations traditionally on these things. And when I know from writing stories about my own life and interviewing people that when they tell you what they said many years ago, they often are telling you what they felt many years ago. Mm-hmm. 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 What they actually said was, oh, okay. And what they thought was, what the fuck are you doing? Mm-hmm. And what they felt was, get off of me. Da, 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 da. So, you know, so this is, um, you know, so anyway, thank you listeners for <laughs> the long form Harvey Weinstein discussion that we had today. I needed <laughs> to get this off my chest and, you know, cancel me, don't cancel me. Um, here I am. Um, yeah, so we are going to move on to the bonus. We've got a couple of things we're going to talk about in the bonus. So the bonus is for paid subscribers. We'd love it if you would paid subscribe. Um, we've got a nice little kind of, a, I think it's a 30-day freebie deal going on over there. We'll, we'll put a, a little, by the way, to new subscribers, whether you're paying or not, we have, um, we always have really good show notes and there'll be a lot of, a lot more information and links and rabbit holes that you can go down there. So we'll, we'll there's lots of ways to get to us and we would appreciate you getting to us. Um, what are we going to be talking about in the bonus, Sarah? I think we're going to be talking about, um, a little bit about Twitter. Uh, we're going to talk maybe a little bit about, uh, uh, the Nepo babies, Nepo babies. How would you, Nepo, I guess, Nepo babies, which are talking about the, the children of celebrities that now are sort of ruling the, um, the, the, uh, the firmament of, of fame. And then we might get into a little, uh, something you sent me last night, Sarah, what was it? Stanford. I mean, that sounds like can't miss offer that you've just laid out for me. I I think I'm going to subscribe even though I'm already subscribed. I'm (laughs) going to double subscribe just to prove how much I want to subscribe. I'm going to get a pay subscription. Okay. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you soon. Smoke them. Amen.